wonderful book. Um, it's written to a group of people in the city or the town of Ephesus. Now, I came up with a map, but after I saw the map up on the screen, I was kind of like, eh, it kind of looks still like a just blob of white. And I, I apologize for that. But this over here, this region over here would be Jerusalem. Uh, there's Damascus. So this would be Israel proper. Down here is Egypt. This is Alexandria. Cairo would be down over here. Uh, so this would be modern-day Turkey over here. And Ephesus is right over here, right at the tip of that blue arrow. Uh, Paul ministered in Ephesus several different times on different missionary journeys. And uh, it was an, uh, an area that was near and dear to his heart. Also, he wrote, we think, from Ephesus when he wrote back to Corinth. Remember First and Second Corinthians. We think that he was in Ephesus writing back and forth, and, and Corinth, Corinth would be over in this area here, and there was uh, traveling back and forth as he was communicating these letters. This particular letter, although it's addressed to the church at Ephesus, which means not a one particular in one meeting, but sort of the church in general in that city, if you think back to the days of Paul the Apostle, um, there may have met in several different locations, but they would have considered themselves all one church. This is before we had any denominations or any different church styles. If there was a group of believers, they were the only believers in that town. And they didn't normally have large uh, places to gather in, so they would typically gather in somebody's home. And they might have several meetings throughout the course of the week as they gathered in different people's homes. Uh, so he ministered to that particular city or that church. But this also was a letter that was intended to be passed around. Matter of fact, some of the manuscripts that we have in the manuscripts are copies of the original letter. Now, in the original letter, we don't have that one, the one that was penned by Paul or by his secretary. But we have copies of them. But some of the copies have a blank space in the chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in Ephesus. And many people think that particular copy was intended to go to someplace else other than Ephesus, and they so they, the person that copied it just sort of left that area blank. Like we might have a, a form letter sometimes, you know, to whom it may concern. Uh, but it wasn't that general, but it was really the sense of, this was a letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians, but he intended it to be spread around. In many of Paul's other letters, they're very corrective. Here's a problem, you guys are doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. The book of Ephesians is different. It is primarily a book of praise, a book of encouragement. There are some fabulous prayers that we find here. We won't get to the first prayer in chapter 1 tonight. But there are some fabulous prayers. I don't recommend that you look up a prayer and just sort of read it as if that's your prayer. But I certainly think, especially in the book of Ephesians, you can find some prayers to model your own prayer life about. For example, and I know I'm skipping ahead here, but the latter part of Ephesians chapter 1, if you are wanting spiritual wisdom, verses 15 through 23 is a great and wonderful prayer by Paul asking that God would anoint and give and grant spiritual wisdom. So that's just one, and there's several prayers. In chapter 2, there's another tremendous prayer. Chapter 3 and 4 has prayers as well. And so the idea here is, you can take these as models for your own prayer life. 
Now, the city of Ephesus was influential, it was strategic, and it's interesting that the Lord used Paul in a number of cities that were greatly strategic. I mentioned Corinth just a moment ago, and Corinth was in the middle of the trading routes. And so when people got born again, came to know Jesus Christ in Corinth, they had a tendency either themselves to travel to someplace else or to come in contact with somebody who would be traveling and the gospel message spread. And we find the same thing here in Ephesus. Ephesus is a port city. It's, again, on that uh, coast of what is modern-day Turkey, but it was at the beginning point of the only east-west road in Paul's time that went through what is today modern-day Turkey into what is called Asia. Now, in the Bible, when it says Asia, we're really talking about uh, Turkey, not what, what you and I think of as Asia or, or maybe the Far East, which would be um, China, Japan, Indonesia, and that kind of thing. So what they called the East would have been, or Asia, excuse me, would have been Turkey. So it was a Roman city. It was established by the Romans uh, or, or ruled by the Romans. They had not yet, later on, they're going to develop this tremendous temple to foreign gods. A temple literally to some of the different emperors of Rome. You see, one of the benefits of being a Roman emperor is after you died, they made you into a god, into a deity, and then they made your statue and people came and worshipped you. I don't think that's any kind of a benefit. It's kind of a harsh thing. Uh, but it had a, a wonderful library, was renowned in its area, and again, it was a trade route. And so it makes sense that if a church developed in Ephesus, that they would then carry or share their letter with other people around them so that the teachings would spread as well as the gospel message would spread. Um, the city was very strong and prosperous, and so they had very little, in a natural sense, need to depend upon other people. And it had a thriving Jewish community. If you remember from the book of Acts, Paul would first go to the Jews in a particular town or community, attempt to share the gospel with them, and then after either they re received it or rejected it, then he would move on to the non-Jews or the Gentiles. So that's just a little bit of sort of background of what we're talking about. What we'll see this evening in chapter 1 is really this tremendous relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And the encouragement is for us not to take it for granted. You and I have been given, bestowed tremendous gifts and because of these gifts that we've been given from God, we ought to recognize them and then respond appropriately back to him. So verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. <coughs> Excuse me. So, first of all, there's little to no controversy over who wrote this. Paul himself is declaring it. He's taking on the, the office of an apostle. And the apostle is essentially somebody that was, <coughs> excuse me, anointed or picked out to be a messenger. We might think of it as somebody like an ambassador. In sort of New Testament terms, we think of somebody that was used of the Lord to help establish the early church. We might think of James or Peter as apostles as well, and Thomas, <coughs> and Paul obviously was used. But notice this. We know that Paul has a tremendous 
education background. We know that he came from the right tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, a preferred tribe, you might say, the right group of people. He was educated in a, in a good school. But notice this, his claim to fame here is he's simply an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You see, when God calls people into ministry or he uses them, he is the one that chooses to use them. It's the will of God that Paul was an apostle. Now, you might think back to Paul's first encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus, or excuse me, the road to Damascus. And the Lord revealed to him some of the difficulties that he would endure, but the Lord also told him that God would use him greatly. And I just want to say this. God used Paul's natural gifts, but the same token, God didn't need Paul's natural gifts. What he wanted was a man who was available to be used by the Lord. We think back in the Old Testament. Sometimes we get enamored with personalities in the Bible, men and women. We say, wow, Abraham, that was a great man. Sarah, that was a great woman. But you realize that at times, different times of the Bible, God used donkeys when a man was trying to do the wrong thing. The amazing thing to me about that story is He's actually arguing with the donkey, not realizing or not sort of having the sense that the donkey's talking back to him. But anyways, so Paul is the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, a moment ago, I said some manuscripts omitted in Ephesus, but I don't want you to be confused or think that somehow there's inconsistency in our Bibles. What I was referring to is if we have, I don't know how many copies of Ephesians we have, but let's just say we had a thousand copies. Two or three of them happen to have this little blank space in them. And some of the copies are only partial copies. But we have a very reliable Bible. Uh, there's a great deal of, of reliability built into the Bible. Um, and so I don't want you to walk away from here feeling like, oh my goodness, maybe there's something wrong in my Bible. Not at all. We have uh, an overwhelming amount of evidence physically looking at the ancient manuscripts that these are actual writings from the Apostle Paul. Verse 2, he goes on and gives us a short greeting. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just really two short verses, which are really just the introduction of this letter. Some of Paul's letters have much longer introductions, but this one is quite short. What's kind of interesting in the Greek language, the original language, verses 3 through 14, and we're not going to get all the way through 14, but verses 3 through 14 in the original language is literally one sentence in the, English, in the Greek structure. Now, Greek language is different than English in the way that it's structured, in the way that the grammar goes. But it's really this idea that Paul has this one really big thought that he's trying to communicate. And it's just interesting, in the English translation, we certainly have periods and commas and, and things like that, but in the original Greek language, there were no punctuation marks. And so um, if you're a student of ancient languages, it's kind of like one of those neat gee whiz facts. Man, one sentence. One commentator mentioned it this way. He said that uh, uh, 
if it was an opera with the sort of a, the big story of the opera, the first scene or the overture, the first beginning opening scene is verses 3 through 14 as Paul just begins to set the stage of what he wants to communicate. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What an amazing short little verse that communicates so much. What we're going to see in this section of chapter 1 is God working, or the triune God, working on behalf of the believer. So kind of put that as a, a heading for chapter 1, at least the first half of chapter 1. The work of the triune, and what does he say here in verse 3? Blessed be the God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have God, the God and Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to see the Holy Spirit come in here as well. But it's the work of God, and notice this, on behalf of the believer. And that's really the theme of what Paul's going to communicate to us, is God has done these things for the benefit or the blessing of the believer. And when it says blessed here, in verse 3, blessed be the God, blessed is the idea of praised with worship of love. And when we talk about worship, please understand, worship is wonderful when we do it musically, but worship is much more than music. Worship is our declaring our adoration to God. Now, you can do that in the shower when you sing in the shower, but you can do it through your work. If God has blessed you with different skills and different abilities, and as you do those things, that can be a form of worship. Lord, I'm doing this. I'm I'm folding this napkin for you, Lord. That can be a, a worship or adoration filled with love. So who has blessed us? Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, and notice this, notice this it is past tense. It is already done. He has blessed us. This blessing of ours is God's resources that's always there for us. Have you had times where you were unsure about whether God would really bless you this time or that time? Have you ever had times where, you know what, I wasn't really doing the right thing, and so maybe I've turned off the spigot of God? No, God's spigot of blessing is always there. Now, you can run away from the spigot and not receive the blessings of God. But his ability to give to you is always there. Who has blessed us. These blessings are always there. It speaks <clears throat> of an attitude of certainty and assurance. One of the things I remember hearing Pastor Chuck share many years ago is he just simply expected God to bless him. It was just his normal everyday thing. He was expecting God to bless him. Do you go through your day looking for the blessings of God with an, expected, an expectancy of God's blessing? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's as you're doing something, homework or reports or traveling or whatever else it is. But are you living your life with an expectation that God literally wants to bless you? 
I think we miss some of the blessings of God because we're not looking for them. We don't have an attitude ready, ready to receive them. Now, it could be a tremendous trial in our life, but in the midst of that trial, do they even still be saying, God, I expect you to bless me. Now, please don't misunderstand me. This is not an expectation like God owes me something. But instead, it is God wants to give me. I don't know about you, but if you ever had like a, an aunt or an uncle or maybe a grandfather or grandmother that every time <coughs> excuse me, you went to visit, they always gave you something. My grandfather, he wasn't a real outgoing sort of person, but he always had cinnamon dentine gum. How do I know that? Because sometime in the visit, he would kind of just slide over and put it in my hand, a piece of gum. And I can tell you, the first time I got it, I'm used to bubble gum, you know, and the cinnamon was like, oh, but I look forward to spending time with him because somehow, somewhere, I expected him to slide me a slice of gum. Now, we never did it in a way that was a big showy thing because I think my mom told him not to give me any gum. So he just kind of slide it to me on the slide. And if you're a grandparent, you know how that works. Okay, mom and dad say no, but I'm grandma, I'm grandfather, and in this case, it's okay. <clears throat> but there is an expectation, and that's the way we ought to approach our God. Not that he owes us, but that he wants to bless us and that we can expect that. So we have a blessing. In other words, we're not sitting here groaning and crying and fretting and worrying and questioning our salvation or whether God loves me. This is not God loves me today. No, he doesn't. But I know that he loves me. He's blessed us and he will continue to bless us. We're his precious children. Does he discipline us? Certainly. But he wants to bless us and even that discipline is a blessing that comes from God. You see a parent that's unwilling to discipline their children. You see a parent that's not loving. Every child needs discipline. Every parent's role is to discipline their child. I'm not talking about beating them to death, but discipline. Unfortunately, I think in our culture today, children in general lack discipline. It's one of the problems we have in our school system is there's a lack of discipline, but it starts at the home. It's not the teacher's fault. It's the parent's fault that don't back up the teachers. Anyways, I'm getting off on a tangent. <clears throat> but here's the idea. If you love your children, you will discipline them. And our Heavenly Father does love us, and He does discipline us. But we should walk or interact with Him with an expectation that he desires to bless us. Think about this for a moment. It's kind of a long phrase here, but it's, it's a quote from Spurgeon, but just kind of let this sink in a little bit. I'll read it to you a couple of times. If you think little of what God has done for you, you will do very little for him. But if you have a great notion of his great mercy to you, you will be greatly grateful to, grateful to your gracious God. Let me try that one more time. If you think little of what God has done for you, you will do little for him. 
But if you have a great notion of his great mercy to you, you will be great, greatly grateful to your gracious God. A lot of greats in there and gracious. But again, our notion of how much God has given to us is directly reciprocal on how we live for him. Another way to phrase it is he who has loved little, loves little. He who has loved much, loves much. If you realize the depth of God's love for you, your love for God ought to just be off the charts. And that's what, that's what we ought to take away from this idea here of this blessing. And notice, it's a blessing for us. Us, both Jews and Gentiles. There is no room in the gospel for racial bigotry, uh, putting one person down because they were educated here versus there, or they lived here or there, the color of their skin, the language that they speak. There is a universal call to salvation. John 3.16, for whosoever would believe. The call is open. The grace of God, the love of God is open to all. Shame on us as Christians if we ever become exclusive because, well, you know, you drive a Chevy and I drive a Ford, or you speak English and I speak Portuguese, or any other divisions that mankind makes up for one another. So he's blessed us. And then notice the next phrase, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice this, it's spiritual blessings, and sometimes we make a mistake, and pastors have done this way too often, of talking about the blessing of God as if it is simply material. It is simply bank account or your car. Now, God is not opposed to you having a bank account, but shame on us to think that God is enamored with material possessions like people on this earth are. Matter of fact, He left heaven to be born as an infant in a stable to be laid in what? We call it a manger, but it's a feeding trough. He was born to a poor family that didn't even have money for room. If God was so concerned about wealth, why would he allow his very own son to be born in a stable or place where they kept animals and then to be laid with swaddling clothes and swaddling clothes just simply means menstrual rags and then to be laid in your dog's feeding bowl or probably more likely a cow or a goat's feeding bowl your god gave up heaven came down on earth because he wanted to give you and i something of so importance what is that something a relationship with him spiritual blessings along the way if you you have material possessions that's wonderful, but don't let that be your goal. Don't let that be the measure of your spiritual growth. God wants to bless us with every spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings are far, far better than all the material things in this world. If you have a bunch of stuff, you got to get big locks to protect it. you got to hire people to maintain it. If you have little or next to nothing... Nobody wants to steal it. But in our culture, we are enamored with the guy that lives in the big house on top of the hill 
with a gate around it, although they oftentimes live miserable lives. And we think the poor person that has a one-bedroom studio apartment or something like that and rides public transportation that somehow they're not blessed. And that's just the opposite of how God looks at things. These blessings are ours where? In heavenly places. <coughs> Excuse me. They're higher. They're better. And they're more secure. So you hire a, an alarm company or security guard to protect your fancy painting that you bought. And the rest of us will just keep our treasure in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy it and nobody's going to rip it off. I'd rather have Gabriel standing up guard over it than whoever is the greatest bodyguard there is. <clears throat> and that's the idea here. We need to have an appreciation for the spiritual blessings God has given us. If we don't have a spiritual appetite or we don't comprehend the tremendous blessings God has given us, then we are acting like nothing more than an animal. An animal cares about what? Food, shelter, entertainment, and reproduction. That's all they care about. And does that not sound like much of the world around us? Give me food, shelter, entertain me, and I want to have sex. As a born-again Christian, there's something so much more important than being entertained or reproducing or having grandchildren or having, <coughs> excuse me, cars. It is the idea that you get to know a God who loves you, that you and I have been made in the image of God. Go all the way back to Genesis 1. You and I are made in the image of God. We have a spiritual component to us. Our lives are so much more than just getting food and getting comfort and entertainment. I'm not saying that having food is wrong or being entertained is wrong, but there's something much more about you and I than your cat or your dog or a cow or a bird or any other crawly creature around the earth here. You and I have a spiritual aspect to us. We are either spiritually dead because we've rejected Jesus Christ or we're spiritually alive because we've received the great gift from God. You were created to be alive. God made you to be alive. This world is not our home. This is a temporary place. Our home is in heaven. And please don't let the things of this world distract you from your ultimate purpose. Your ultimate purpose is to be with God. Your ultimate purpose is to enjoy all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm not saying you can't play video games or go to movies or enjoy life, but may the master passion of your life be to draw closer to Christ. May you not be satisfied just because you got a hamburger this afternoon. And I hope the hamburgers were okay. But may you, get, may you have more a longing for something more than just food. And then verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. 
What a wonderful statement here. Believers, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this evening, then you were chosen by God. You were chosen by God before what? What does it say? Before the foundations of the world. So before God divided light and darkness, before God out of nothing made earth and heaven and the animals, and then ultimately Adam and Eve, he knew you and he said, I chose you. That's how much he loves us. That's how much we need to understand. God wants to bless us. Has there been problems? Have mankind created problems? Certainly we have. But here's the idea. <coughs> Excuse me. Believers, we can say, now, not going to get too far on the predestination, not going to get too far on the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. Those are certainly good questions. And they're valid questions that need to be answered. But let's understand this for tonight. He has chosen you before the foundation of the world. That means before you were ever born, before your great-great-grandfather was ever born, before Adam and Eve, your DNA was ultimately in Adam and Eve. Before that ever happened, God said, I want you. Do you understand how much God loves you and he wants you? Now, certainly, this is God's ultimate or infinite free will or the will of God. God can do whatever he wants. And if he says, before I made everything, I knew what was going to happen and I wanted to choose you. God certainly can do that. And God's free will or God's willingness or God's ability to choose trumps man's free will. But yet we know that he's given us a free will. But God's free will is bigger, stronger than our free will. Before God ever made the oceans, he chose you. This great light, this great truth, before anything ever was, God says, I want you. It doesn't diminish our responsibility to respond to the call. It doesn't diminish our need to respond in faith. But from God's perspective, he is saying, I want you. And he's always wanted us. God has selected us. And that ought to give us not a sense of entitlement. But again, it should give us a sense, I'm a child of God. Now, if I mess up, he's going to discipline me. But I'm still his child. And he still loves me. And he wants to bless me. There are lots of questions that we have about God's predestination or choosing us and man's responsibility. But what we do know is we can this evening, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can with certainty say, God chose me. Some people have sort of painted the picture this way. It's a door. On one side of the door, before you walk through it, it says, whosoever. The door is open. Anybody that wants to respond is welcome to respond after you walk through that door of faith and you look back on the back of that door, it says, I picked you. But on the front side, it was an open call to anybody. How those two ultimately interact and meet, I don't have a satisfactory answer, I'll be honest with you. But I do know that before the foundations of the world, we were chosen. And that we should, we're chosen for what? That we should be 
holy without blame before him in love. That's God's ultimate purpose for us. He wants you and I to be holy. That word holy is to be set apart without blemish, to be without sin. That's why Christ came to redeem us, is so that we could be bought and therefore be declared as if we had never sinned. (coughs) And we're to do this in love, or to recognize His love. That we, you and I, should be holy in love. You see, we're chosen not only for salvation, which is a wonderful thing, but we're also chosen to be holy. We're called to be righteous. In the same breath that God says, I choose you, I chose you before the foundations of the world, in the same breath he's saying, to be holy. I want you to be saved, I want you to be my child, and I want you to be holy. Shame on us if we say to God, God, I want your gift of salvation. I want to go to eternal life. I want to spend eternity with you in heaven. But I don't want any of that holiness stuff. We're missing the boat. Because that's where all the blessings are in, quote, unquote, that holiness. Look at this. This is from another guy. Uh, but his name is Clark. But as love is the fulfilling of the law. Think about that. As love is the fulfilling of the love of law, excuse me, and love the fountain whence their salvation flowed. Salvation flows out of this fountain. These are guys that speak in English, not of our time, obviously. Therefore, love must fill their hearts towards God and one another. <clears throat> if you are responding to God, to God's great love for you, then we have to respond back to God with great love for Him. Otherwise, it's not a relationship. Otherwise, it's us just taking advantage of Him. So, verse 5, having predestined, which means to predetermine us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of Him. God having predestined, God's plan unfolded includes our salvation, but also our personal transformation as well as a confident relationship with the Father. When we say that we're chosen, that we're predestined, it includes salvation, but also it includes that transformation, that change, that metamorphosis, that born again, to be a caterpillar that goes into the cocoon and then comes out a beautiful butterfly. God has predestined or chosen us or called us not only to salvation, but then to be transformed, to have your mind renewed according to the Word of God, to have your mind changed, the attitude hearts changed. That's all part of the package. We can't say to God, I want the gift of salvation, but I don't want to be transformed. I want, the, the, I want to be loved, but I don't want to love others. Oh, I want the, all the goodies, God, but I don't want any of the hardships. It's an all-in-one package. It's a bundle deal. You know, it's a value meal at the fast food restaurant, and whether you like it or not, you're getting those fries. It's, that's the concept. You get all of it together, salvation, but also transformation, a call to love God, a call to love one another. It's an all-in-one thing. We can't pick and choose and say, oh, I don't like this part of it. He's predestined us for adoption by his sons according to his will. 
according to his good pleasure and his will. God's will is for us to be adopted. Now, in Ephesus, because they were a Roman city, they would totally understand this concept of adoption, which is a little bit different than our concept of adoption. You see, somebody could be adopted when they were very old. Somebody could be an independent young man and still be adopted. When an adoption was complete, the person's past, whatever it was, was as if it had never happened. Let's say, for an example, maybe I was in debt, an indentured servant. Uh, Maybe I had committed crime and I was due to be in prison. And then some wealthy benefactor says, no, I'm going to adopt Duane. And so when the adoption is complete, according to the Roman laws and traditions, when I'm adopted, I'm a brand new person. My old record is espunged. It is as if I never had a debt. It is as if I had never sinned or I had never committed a crime. And all the penalty that this Duane deserved is now wiped totally away. And from the moment of adoption, I'm now not Duane, but I'm whoever my, my adopted person is. Same physical person, but the roles, the responsibility, the inheritance is all mine by adoption. But over here, same physical person, but my mu- name was Mud. I had no inheritance. I had a debt. I deserved to be in prison or whatever else. But the moment that the person adopted me, let's just say for the sake of the argument, Mr. Smith adopts me. I become Dwayne Smith. And it's as if that person over there never existed. That's what it means when God says you and I are his adopted children. You're the same person. I'm the same person with the same thoughts and attitudes and things. But God says, Dwayne, once you are adopted into the family of God, all the guilt, all the shame, the hell that you deserved as an inheritance, all of that is forgotten. And now over here, you're a child of God. And you have all the inheritance of a child of God. You have a heavenly hope. You have spiritual blessings that are due to you. And you can expect them. And when Satan or your old friend says, oh yeah, remember when the old Duane did this? You can rightly say, I'm not the old Duane. I'm the new Duane. I'm an adopted child of God. And so this term adoption is what this means. We've been adopted as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So it's not a wealthy benefactor. It's not the Bill Gates of the world that's adopted me. Instead, it's somebody much better than a Bill Gates. It's Jesus Christ has adopted me. And as a son of Jesus Christ, I should rightly, not arrogantly, but it's okay for me to expect spiritual blessings. It's okay for me to wake up in the morning and just roll over and expect to talk to God as if he's right there in the room. Because he is. It's right for me to say, God, I'm in trouble. This thing's going on in my life. And for me just to say, Lord, what do you want me to do about it? Because... I'm a child, I'm adopted into the family of God, and I'm adopted to be a son of Jesus Christ. So it's not arrogance, it's not pride to say, I expect God to bless me. 
Again, not because I deserve it, not because I <coughs> somehow earned it or held my breath until God gave me something. No, it's because I have a relationship with God. It's like if my grandfather had some dentine gum. It's okay for me to expect him to give me a piece. Not because I was a good grandson, just because by nature of a grandfather-grandson relationship. That's why he gave it to me. He didn't give me the gum because I was, had gotten good grades or anything else. It was just because we were spending time in. I think he just kind of liked to poke <coughs> my grandmother and my mom in <coughs> by giving me the gun, excuse me. But we've been adopted as sons to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. God delights in adopting you. God delights in blessing you. That's a wonderful thing. And sometimes we think <coughs> mistakenly that we're, because we think of it in human relationships. Well, I've asked somebody for a favor too many times. You know, I need a ride. My car's broken down. I asked my neighbor on the left-hand side last time, so I better ask somebody else because I don't want to burn any of these bridges. But that's not the way it works with God. God says, come to me, ask. Because it is his good pleasure. He wants to bless us. He wants to redeem us. He wants to transform us. So we've been predestined as sons of Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us acceptable in the Beloved. What an amazing statement. This relationship, it's a relational thing that we have with God and it emphasized here again when He says that we are full of grace or highly favored. Do you remember what the angel said to Mary when she found out that she was going to be pregnant with our Messiah? He called her highly favored one, blessed one. And that's what God, and certainly she was blessed to be able to bear the child, the virgin, being a virgin, but yet to bear a child that would be the redemption, the, the salvation of all of mankind. But you and I are also highly favored by God. He wants us to understand our position before him and that we are accepted just like Jesus Christ is fully accepted by the Father. I doubt that we've ever had a moment doubts about Jesus being accepted before the Father. He lived a perfect life. He did the Father's will. Of course he was accepted. Guess what? You and I have been adopted in now we have all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ, not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, but by adoption. Therefore, since we've been adopted in, we have all those same rights and privileges of Jesus Christ. Not that we're Jesus Christ, please don't misunderstand me. But the blessings, this relational, this being full of grace, just like Jesus is completely accepted by his Father, you and I are completely accepted by God. Shame on us when we have said to God, God, I'm not sure you're really listening, but we can boldly 
Hebrews chapter 4, we can boldly go into the throne room of grace. Not because you're a good person, but because you've been adopted into the family of God. And you can say, hey, I'm one of your children. And so, God, I've messed up. God, I'm in trouble. God, help. And he will listen to you. And Paul here realizes that it's all according to this grace of God. God's resources at Christ's expense. It's God's gift. God wants to bless you. It's this grace relationship. And we have to understand this. It's not you or I working our way to heaven, working ourselves into favor with God. God wants to bless us. But again, remember, it's a whole package. God wants to bless us, but he wants us also to be transformed. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to grow spiritually and to enjoy all the spiritual blessings that are for us. Giftings, we might call it. God wants to gift you, not for your own personal benefit, so that you can be used for others. God wants to give you spiritual insight, not just for yourself, but so that you can be used in other people's lives. God desires to bless us. We've been accepted into the Beloved. It's as if you or I were a leper. You remember what leprosy is? A skin disease. Technically, it's a, it's a nerve disease. And the problem with the nerve disease is you don't notice when you're sleeping the rat chewing on your hand or your toes, and so you're prone to infection. You don't realize that you've burnt your hand because your nerve endings have deadened. And so it looks like an ashen thing as your skin becomes totally infected. Um, It becomes something that you are ostracized from all of society. Get away. Don't have anything to do with that person. So you and I spiritually were lepers. We couldn't help ourselves. No matter what we did, we kept burning ourselves. You fall asleep and a rat chews on your toe. You can't help that. But that's our spiritual condition. We were lepers. In a twinkling of an eye, in a moment of time, he changed us and made us as if we were young men, young women. In the sense of vitality, in the sense of our skin being young and new again. For those of you who are older, no more arthritis or achy bones and joints and all that kind of stuff. And he's not talking about a spiritual, uh, physical renewal. He's talking about a spiritual renewal. You were weighed down by sin. You were weighed down by the consequences of things you've done in your past. And God says, I want to make you a brand new person. That sinful thing that used to have you in bondage, you're totally set free from that by the grace of God, by the work of Christ on the cross. And so stop living as if you're in bondage to it. Instead, live expecting God to bless you and knowing that's the old Dwayne. I don't live there anymore. Then verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Redemption. It implies that a price was paid for our freedom. Somebody purchased you. It literally is the idea, especially in the ancient cultures, when they had two cities would fight and they would take prisoners from one city to the other city, the prisoner would be held in ransom. 
And if you didn't have a rich benefactor to buy you out of, out of the prisoner of war camp, then you became a slave to that other city. So let's just pretend that Garland had a war with Rockwall, and Rockwall won, and they took you, and they held you in Rockwall, and they sent a message back. Oh, we'll let you go if you pay $10,000. Most of us don't have $10,000 sitting around, so you end up continuing to be a slave. But if somebody has the money to pay, you get set free. You get delivered. The ransom has been paid. It's a kidnapper sort of thing. Except spiritually, you have been redeemed. You've been purchased. You were a slave to sin, but now you've been purchased. You're a brand new person in Christ. And nothing wrong with Rockwall, but why do you keep wanting to go back to Rockwall where you were a slave? Instead, enjoy Garland where you're set free, right? I know it's a, you get the idea though. Somebody who's been set free in Christ. That's the idea of redemption. The price has been paid. You are free. You're freed indeed. It has the idea to liberate somebody, to pay the ransom like a kidnapper ransom. Here, the price is paid by what, though? This is not a monetary thing. This is not a money thing. The price, according to verse 7, was paid for by what? By the blood of Jesus Christ. You had to be redeemed only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing else would carry that. And that you've been redeemed, and then that same blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven you of sin. It doesn't say that you've never sinned. It says you're forgiven of sin. But he goes on to say, then no longer act like a slave to that sin. So we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according I love this part, according to the riches of His grace. How much does God have to give for you and I? Innumerable. God doesn't run out of mercy or grace. Whatever your difficulties are, God has more resources. When you find yourself in a difficult circumstance and you're tempted to believe there's no way that God can get me out of this. I want you to tell you, I want to tell you this. God has more resources than you have trouble. God has more resources than you have trouble. That's not an excuse for us to go run into trouble, but understand whatever your trouble is, God has more resources. Which he verse 8 which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence to abound Abound is this idea of having more than a container can hold. That's to abound. It's the idea of, <clears throat> well, right now we're abounding in chips back there. And I encourage all of you to take some chips because we have more chips than we can contain. So please take two, three, ten bags with you because we're abounding in chips. If you don't believe me, go into the youth room and check it out. But literally, we are abounding in chips. That's the idea. Some days we're abounding in bread. It's, an, it's more than we can handle, more than we can pass out. I'm not complaining about it, but that's the idea. That's the concept. It's more than you can handle. And guess what? You and I are abounding. We ought to abound. God has poured out His mercy towards us, His, 
His forgiveness, His redemption, and He's made us abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. What a wonderful saying. God wants to pour His life into us. Please understand, nothing wrong with you expecting God to bless you because He is abounding in blessings. I hope if you go by the youth room and you see all those chips, you're not embarrassed to take two or three bags because there's plenty. That's the idea. God wants to give you spiritual gifts. God wants to bless you. God wants you to have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. But why? He abounds in those spiritual blessings and He longs to give them to you. We sometimes get in the way. We say, oh God, I don't need any more. I don't want any more. Or we get enamored with something else. We get distracted with something else over here when God's trying to pour a blessing out. If we were to wake, or wake up every day and walk through our days with an expectation that God will bless me today, I don't know how, but I know that God will. And please don't misunderstand me. This expectation of a blessing is not excuse me, necessarily material. It's a spiritual blessing. Maybe it's an insight. Maybe you'll open up God's Word and you'll get a new insight into your relationship with God. That's a blessing. Maybe somebody will come alongside and give you a word of encouragement or pray for you. That's a blessing. Maybe God will give you the opportunity to be an encouragement to somebody else, to pray for somebody else, and that's a blessing. We ought to go through every day expecting God to bless us. We don't know how. We know we don't deserve it. But God is such a great God who wants to give us gifts that he abounds in them. Nothing wrong with you expecting God to show up during the course of your day and to bless you. Because that's the kind of God that we have. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But by relationship, we should enjoy all those blessings.